Recently, I read a story from The Voice of the Martyrs, which is a ministry that focuses on supporting the persecuted church. They related the count of a young couple in India. They were the only Christians in their Hindu community. They started sharing their faith and praying for the sick. Well, the leaders in the village didn't particularly care for that, and they started calling them names and making threats of violence to them and so forth. Eventually, they asked the husband to publicly renounce his faith at a community meeting they were holding. Well, the husband responded by declaring his faith in Christ and saying how he could not renounce his faith in Jesus. Some men came to his house and pressured him to participate uh, and a ceremony to honor Hindu gods and contribute to various Hindu causes. This man, this husband, was named Kande, he refused and he was threatened with death. After several more years of persecution, finally it came to a head on June 7th of last year, 2020, when an armed mob surrounded his house, broke down the door, drug him outside, and killed him. His wife and two children survived persecuted for their faith in Christ. They are not alone. Christians face persecution in all kinds of ways throughout our world, whether it's ostracism, whether it's beatings, loss of income, unemployment, imprisonment, and even death. Some estimate that Christian persecution is worse now than it's ever been in church history. Now, what's striking, is, as I thought about it this week, is that Christians are persecuted in all kind of context. It's not just one particular context. For example, uh, Christians are persecuted in communist nations like China and North Korea. They're persecuted in Muslim-controlled areas like Iran and Saudi Arabia. They're persecuted in Hindu-dominated nations like India and Nepal and Buddhist-dominated nations like uh, Vietnam and Laos. And while not to the same degree, there is growing persecution in nations that are increasingly secular, like the United States. Christians can lose a job, face fines, or get kicked out of degree programs for simply holding biblical convictions about sexuality and gender. Recently, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act and now it waits for a Senate vote. The Equality Act may dramatically weaken religious liberty and accelerate Christian persecution. Now, as we hear about all these cases of persecution around the world, we need to realize that there is an underlying reason for this universal persecution. Behind this universal persecution is Satan. He is determined to destroy the church, and he will use whatever means necessary. And as if persecution were not enough, he has many other ways of attack. Division in the church. Temptations to lead Christians into harmful sin that will also hurt their testimony to a watching world. False teaching that leads people astray from the gospel message of Jesus Christ that brings salvation. Deception that causes continued senses of guilt and discouragement among individual Christians. So in our passage today, 
in a sense, we're, we're, the veil is torn back between all these things that we see around us in our world, we get an idea of the underlying spiritual reality that is the cause of all the persecution, the cause of all the struggles in the churches and the cause of struggles in our own lives. And that reality is Satan. We get a glimpse into this hidden spiritual reality. And I hope and pray that all of us will see that and realize how important and significant it is and how vital it is for the church, for us, to take it seriously. Amen? Amen. To not be asleep when we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. But also I want you to leave here today with a renewed sense of confidence and victory that Jesus has conquered the devil. And there is no reason for Christians to walk around with a constant and perpetual sense of defeat and discouragement when Jesus has brought victory to his church. So let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. While you're turning there, just a brief recap. Revelation begins with Jesus giving this commission, if you remember, all the way back. We're almost halfway through. We are halfway through the book of Revelation. Be done in a few months here. So all the way back in Revelation 1, Jesus gave that commission to John to write this book, the book of Revelation. And John, in chapters 2 and 3, gave a message from Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor that were relative to their time, but also significant for churches in all times. Revelation 4 and 5, John had this vision of the throne room of heaven, the place where God rules over the universe. And also we saw Jesus, the victorious lamb, taking the scroll and seating on the throne. And then we saw two cycles of judgments, the seals and the trumpet judgments, which symbolize God's reign over this world and also his judgment that he brings on this world because of our sin. And these judgments stretch from the time of Jesus' resurrection all the way to his return. And they culminate at the very end with Jesus' return and the end of the world. Both the seal and the trumpet judgments kind of portray this time between Jesus' return and resurrection. I mean, his, his resurrection is returned. Now we're going to see one more cycle of judgments in Revelation 16. These are called the bold judgments. But before then, before we get to that, we're going to have several chapters where John unveils these hidden realities, things that have appeared so far, like Satan has shown up in some of these churches that we saw in the first few chapters there. We, he is mentioned, but we really get a deep idea of what Satan is doing and the destruction he is bringing and how the church can stand victorious. So that's what we're going to pick up here in um, Revelation chapter 12. Everybody there with me today? Revelation 12. All right. The first part of our passage is the woman, the child, and the dragon. Let's read verses 1 to 6 together. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and with the feet under her, excuse me, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, and she was about to, 
excuse me, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So John has this new vision and three characters are introduced in this vision. And so it's important to really understand who these three characters are. So let's start with the child, okay? This is kind of an easier one here. The child is mentioned. He, the child is Christ because he is this male child who's going to rule the nations, as it says there, with a rod of iron, going back to Psalm 2, which was a messianic prophecy, okay? So this is speaking of Christ. As it says there, he was born and then he was caught up to heaven. Now, it's interesting that John kind of skips over the life and, and ministry and death of Jesus. Now, we know, of course, that, we, that how significant Jesus' life and ministry were, I mean, that was the basis of him taking the scroll, right, back in Revelation 5, was the fact that he died and he ransomed the people for himself. So John's not skipping past it because it's insignificant, but for the purposes of of his point here, he's trying to show that Jesus, after he died, he rose again and he ascended to heaven and he eluded the grasp of Satan, who was not able to harm him, okay? He was not able to destroy him as he wanted to do. What about the woman? Who's the woman here? Well, some would say that it's the nation of Israel. Some would say that it's the church. Some would say that it's Mary. I think there's an element of truth in all of those explanations, but they can't fully explain who she is. Because you see, the woman precedes Jesus in some type of symbolic and significant way. So it can't be the church, strictly speaking. But also, You see how the woman lasts for a long period after Jesus ascends to heaven, right? And withstands Satan attack for a long time. So to me, that would rule out Israel and Mary. So who is the woman? I believe the woman represents the people of God, the faithful people of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've seen that a lot in Revelation, kind of that organic unity. You're going to see it at the end when it talks about the 12... uh, the 12 gates, right, that represent the, the apostles, the 12 uh, doors, if I'm not mistaken, that represent the, the tribes of Israel, right? There's that unity between God's people. And so in this way, they precede Jesus as he came from that faithful remnant of Israel, but also the woman continues long after Jesus ascends to heaven, which is what the church is doing. So who's the dragon? Well, says later in verse 9 that this dragon is Satan. You say, well, what's the significance of what we just read about all the heads and the horns and so forth? Well, I think the horns, or excuse me, the heads symbolize that, that, that Satan has unbelievable knowledge. He's very wise. He's very cunning and so forth. It might also symbolize that he's deceiving different kingdoms and so forth in the world. He has as it says there also, these uh, horns, which is a symbol of power. He has a diad- these diadems, which are symbols of authority. So the dragon is a very great and mighty creature. Amen? Amen? He is a mighty creature, much stronger than any human being. We need to remember that. 
It also talks about how his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And I think more than likely that's probably not speaking of heavenly bodies, but angels that he led astray in some type of rebellion. Notice also there that when Jesus was born, how he was ready to attack him. He was ready to take out Jesus. He wanted to destroy him. And all throughout his life, he wanted to destroy Jesus. He knew what was at stake. And so when Jesus was born, remember King Herod? How he had that really satanic plot to wipe out all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two? Doesn't doesn't that have Satan's fingerprints all over that? Or when Jesus begins his ministry and he's out in the wilderness, who goes at him for 40 days trying to tempt him because he knows if he gets Satan to, or excuse me, Jesus to sin, his ministry is demolished? Satan does, right? He was constantly trying to destroy Jesus. But did he? No, he did not. Satan fails. But it's interesting, at the very end of that passage you read, the woman flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days. We're going to see that figure. We've seen it. We're going to see this figure in three and a half years and uh, 42 months. And it'll also say later in our passage, a time, a times, and half a time. All of those are talking about the exact same amount of time, right? It's equivalent. Now, it's possible that it's a literal three and a half years, but I tend to take it that it's a symbolic of the number seven, which symbolizes completeness and fullness. But instead of the church being completely persecuted and destroyed, it's only going to be partially so. Satan will never completely destroy the church. We will go through this hardship during the time between the resurrection of Christ and his return, but we will never and completely be destroyed like Satan wants to do. You say, well, why does she flee to the wilderness? Well, in the Old Testament, the wilderness was the place where Israel spent 40 years, right? Remember when they escaped from Pharaoh's clutches? And there Israel was tested and prepared for the promised land. So the wilderness is both a place of protection and a place of testing. You see where this is going? So the people of God are put out into the wilderness now. Not literally so, but the church fled from Satan is now being tested as we prepare for entrance into the promised land, the new creation that Jesus is going to bring one day. And while we're here, God nourishes his people. He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't leave you stranded. So let me ask you a question. Do you realize where you are right now in God's plan of redemption? You are in the wilderness. You are not in the promised land. Sometimes Christians get frustrated and angry with God because I think somehow they believe that now is the promised land. This is perfect. This is what God has for us. This is the end goal or whatever it might be. Clearly it says there that now we are in the wilderness. We're protected from Satan. He cannot ultimately cause us to fall and stumble and fall away from the faith. But we will experience hardships. And we're being tested and prepared for what awaits us. Amen? Makes all the difference in the world, I think, if you have a proper set of expectations. Has that ever happened in your life? When you, if you just change your expectations, everything, the whole situation is different, right? 
I think it's the same with this. So, we've seen so far this first part here where the characters are introduced. Now we come to the defeat of Satan, the second part of our passage. And here we, we get elaborated how Jesus defeated Satan. Let's read verses 7 to 9 together. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this scene here begins with, a war in heaven. On one hand, you have Satan and his angels. And we, we just discussed him so far, but John adds even more description. He starts by describing him as this ancient serpent. What does that bring to mind for you? Go all the way back to Genesis 3, right? Where Satan possesses that serpent and deceives Adam and Eve into disobeying God and brought the fall into the world. Satan has opposed humanity from the very beginning. That's who he is and what he's constantly doing. He also calls him the devil. Very common title. You know what the word devil means? It literally means one who slanders. One who slanders. One who is telling lies about you. Satan loves to hurl accusations at people. He's also called the deceiver of the whole world. He's not just located in one town or one location. He is around the world causing problems. He doesn't control the world. Amen? God controls the world. But he has his cancerous tentacles all throughout the world causing deception. Telling people lies about who God is and who you are and what is the way of salvation. Constantly deceiving people. So that's one side of the battleground. On the other side is Michael and his angels. You say, well, who's Michael? Well, Michael appears in the Old Testament as kind of the representative angel of Israel. In Jude 9, Michael is identified as an archangel. So Michael, he is a very powerful angel himself. And his angels defeat Satan and throw him to the earth. Just as an aside... Isn't it fascinating to even think about what was taking place there? I mean, to imagine angelic beings fighting, millions and millions of angelic beings fighting, these super powerful creatures, spirit beings, and and how do they fight? You ever think about that? What kind of weapons do they use? How How do they gain victory over each other? We have no idea what's going on around us, amen? Very powerful fascinating. Let's read verses 10 to 12 as we hear about the result of this victory. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and, of his, and, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Wow. So that voice says that, look, salvation, power, and the kingdom of God has come, right, as well as the authority of Christ. 
Now, I don't think this is talking about the second coming because we know the battle is still raging. It's talking about the first coming. But at that first coming, a decisive victory was won by Christ. He defeated Satan at the cross. Remember what he said the night before his crucifixion. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So something decisive happened at the cross. It wasn't just business as usual afterward. Something decisive happened at the cross. Do you know that? Do you realize that? You say, what was going on? What well, seems that before Christ came, Satan used to accuse God's people day and night. Look at the book of Job. You remember that story where Satan goes before the throne of God and accuses saying that Job only worshipped you, God, because you bless him. Remember that? If you take away those blessings, he's going to renounce his faith, making accusations against Job. In the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah 3, the high priest Joshua, Satan is standing there accusing him before God. So he somehow in the Old Testament days, had access to God to accuse God's people before the throne of God. But he doesn't have that any longer. He doesn't have it any longer. You say, what happened? Well, in the Old Testament, there were animal sacrifices that would atone for sin in a temporal way, right? But not a permanent way. These sacrifices were important, but they were not powerful enough to wash away the sin in a kind of permanent and deep level that cleansed even the conscience of those who were worshiping. And so Satan realized that and would come along and accuse based on the fact that that sin had been partially atoned for, but not permanently atoned for. So when Jesus comes along and he died for our sins, his sacrifice was perfect. And his sacrifice was permanent, meaning that all of your sin is washed away and that Satan no longer has a basis to accuse the people of God. Our guilt and condemnation is gone. And that's why the New Testament says that Satan was defeated on the cross. Colossians 2, 13 to 15, Paul said, Having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. I think he's speaking about angelic beings there, demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the cross disarmed these demons. Jesus basically came and took the weapons right out of their hands and threw them to the ground. But it is important that the church implements what Jesus has done. In Revelation 12, it talked about, do we conquer Satan by our good works? No. We conquer him by the blood of the Lamb, what Jesus did, and by the word of our testimony. When a person believes in Jesus, all of their sins are gone. They're forgiven, past, present, and future. But the Christian has to claim those promises 
and it's essential that we declare this. The word of our testimony. We need to declare our faith in Christ and keep declaring our faith in Christ and keep clinging to those promises that He has washed away all of your sins past, present, and future. And we are going to hold to that faith in Christ all the way, even to the point of death. Now, Satan's defeat leads to the heavens rejoicing, but the earth should tremble because Satan is confined to the earth and he is very angry. He knows that his time is short before he is permanently judged and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, someone might say, well, if he knows he's defeated, why escalate his rage, right? You would think he would stop him in his tracks. That's a good question. But it doesn't understand radical evil. Because when someone is radically evil, they want to take out other people with them. Look at sort of on a human level. Look at some of the gunmen that do the things that they do. They're so filled with misery and hate that they not only want to take themselves out, but they want to take out as many people as they can with them before they go. Look, look on a national level in World War II. Adolf Hitler was, he knew he was defeated. His generals were telling him to surrender. But he refused to surrender because he was filled with rage and fought to the very end. Taking out so many people all the way to the end. And I think likewise, Satan, seeing these things, because he is a radically evil being, just ramps up his rage. So the church needs to be on guard. Amen? So let's conclude our passage We saw the defeat of Satan. How about the persecution of Satan? And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So once Satan realizes that his access to heaven has been removed, he pursues the woman. And the woman is given, the, the, as it says there, the two wings of the great eagle. Now, unlike the old rock song, uh, she, she, you know, she doesn't fly like an eagle to the sea, right? But she flies to the wilderness. Once again, we see that imagery there. And, and it's, again, going back to the Old Testament. God protected his people. Israel, by sending them out in the wilderness. And he made that analogy with the eagles. He said in Exodus 19.4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God delivered Israel from the hand of Egypt, brought them to the wilderness. And here he preserves God's people from the clutches of Satan. And he will continue to protect them until Jesus returns. Now, Satan does not give up, though, does he? 
sends forth that great stream of water, that flood of water to try to wipe us out. Never gives up is right. You say, what is that symbolizing? Well, again, I think it's symbolizing his, his attempt to persecute the church, to attack it externally, to attack it internally, right? Causing divisions, causing false teaching, causing havoc in our own lives so that we harm our own witness. And he's going to keep trying. And he's going to keep giving, never giving up. And interestingly, it says there at the very end of the passage that he stands on the sand of the sea. What on earth is he doing there? Well, he's not collecting seashells. He's not making sandcastles. We'll find out next week as we are introduced to the beast who rises up out of the sea, symbolic as we're going to see here of ultimately the Antichrist. We're also going to see how he raises up the false prophet. We're going to see the famous mark of the beast and the number 666. All that's packed into Revelation 13. So I hope you're back here next week to hear that fascinating passage. Let me close with two points. If it hasn't been made clear by now, I hope it, I just will have to do it again, I guess. Take Satan seriously. Take Satan seriously in your life. Satan was defeated, yes. But that doesn't mean he's powerless. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan didn't devour Christ like he wanted to. And so now he seeks the church, and he's full of wrath. He's full of rage. He knows his time is short. So it's absolutely essential that the church is not apathetic but that we take Satan seriously. And if you're sitting here today and you're just constantly struggling with the same sins over and over, never making progress, or constantly battling the discouragement and despair, have you considered the reality of spiritual warfare? That it's not just a matter of you living your life and bumping into people around you, but there is actually, as we just saw in our passage here today, if you could pull back, there is a whole transcendent realm, an unseen realm, a spiritual reality, a spiritual warfare that is going on. And as we saw in our passage here today, Satan wants to bring havoc to the church and he wants to bring havoc to your life. And Christians sometimes can live their lives either ambivalent or apathetic and kind of stuck in the mud or have their lives fall apart. And they all the while do not take seriously that they have an enemy who is after them. Meanwhile, the Word of God tells us to put on the full armor of God and to engage in spiritual warfare. Paul talks about this at great length in Ephesians chapter 6. I preached a four-part message on that last year. I'm not going to go through all of that right now. But I encourage you, we're going to link it to our Facebook page and our website. Go back and listen to those messages as Paul tells us how to engage in spiritual warfare, to take Satan seriously. 
And one last thing when it comes to take Satan, taking Satan seriously is that be prepared for persecution. You will face persecution, the Bible says, if you live for Christ Jesus. You will face persecution. So can I challenge you today to be prepared to face it, to be prepared to endure it, no matter what the costs that you're going to stand for Christ, even if it costs you your job, if it costs you ostracism from family or friends, even if it costs you your life, that the people of God would love Him so much that we'd be willing to lay down our lives for Christ Jesus because of what He has done for us. Amen, church? That is where we need to be as a church. Second thing, declare the word of your testimony. Declare the word of your testimony. You know, we just saw how we defeat Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Christ has won the victory. Trust what He has done and live in that power. This is essential, church. It's absolutely essential. You say, why is that? Well, Satan may not have authority now, right? He's been thrown out of heaven. I just love that image. God just threw him out of heaven, right? No longer. The door is barred. So he can't accuse you before God, but he can't accuse you before you. For example, as we just said, Satan will tempt Christians to believe that God, he can't truly forgive you because of what you've done in the past. Not true at all. Instead, God wants you to walk and live in that full forgiveness that Christ Jesus has won for you on the cross. He didn't die so you could walk around tortured with guilt and shame. He wants you to walk in the freedom that Christ gives. Apostle Paul was a vicious persecutor of the church, shared in the murder of Christians. But in Romans 8.1, Paul says, therefore, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do not listen to false demonic accusations, but rather hold firm to those true divine promises of who you are in Christ and what He has done on your behalf. You don't need to punish yourself to somehow pay for what was lacking in Christ's sacrifice. He paid it all. He wants you to walk in freedom, to not have condemnation or guilt any longer. Fight lies with the truth of God's Word. And when Satan comes along and tempts you with the lie that you are helpless and you cannot change, You're just the same old person. Nothing's changed in your life. Cling to that word of your testimony. Cling to the word of God. Declare to Satan, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When Satan comes along and he tempts you that God's forgotten you, that he has no plan for your life, that all this stuff that you're going through is, makes no sense at all. God has abandoned you. That's when you come along and you say to the devil, 
Romans 8, 28, 29, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those things that you are going through, they're not an accident. God hasn't forgotten you. He's using every single thing to make you more like Christ, which is why he saved you, which is your greatest calling to become like Christ. Cling to the word of your testimony, church. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this unveiling, as the book of Revelation is. It's an unveiling of these spiritual realities. And we thank you that what we have seen and heard this morning, Lord God, about the reality of Satan. Lord God, we pray that you you would help us to take him seriously and the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. And not just always look to human causes and events for the things that are plaguing us hurting the church, and things that are happening in our world. Lord, we know that there is an enemy, the ancient serpent of old. And so, Lord, help us to take seriously this spiritual warfare. And God, we pray that you would lead us away from temptation and to avoid the enemy. And Lord Jesus, we ask you to fill our minds with Scripture. Lord, help us to have some scripture verses that we cling to when the enemy whispers those things in our hearts and our minds. That we are different because of Christ. And we cling to the word of our testimony. And Lord, I pray for the church here this morning that each individual, Lord, would walk in the freedom that you've called them to walk. To lay aside those feelings and shame and guilt and condemnation, to know that they are free in Christ, to know that they are new creatures in Christ, to know that you've saved them, Lord, and you will keep them to the end. And Lord, in closing, I just also pray for someone here today who's never trusted you for salvation. Lord, you did all of this so that people could know you. You came into this world as a child lived and died on the cross, rose again, ascended to heaven so that we might have eternal life. And Lord, I pray for someone here today who's never believed in that wonderful good news that today they might humble themselves and believe in Christ. Claim these promises. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.